Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. At last, it's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gather around the table this Thursday, we've got Patrick Klepek. Hello. Danielle Riendeau. Hi, hello. How did you pronounce that last name? It was very French. It was a uh, very French way of pronouncing. You know, I was having this thought the other day. I was like, it's Riendo. It's Riendo. But I have French. a I have a hard time. I, the problem is, it took me so long to master any the correct pronunciation spelling of any word ending in e a u that like I end up just maybe maybe making your name. Sorry, I feel, I feel like I feel like now it's I've like French. deeply embarrassed you. I I apologize, Rob. <laughs> No, no, like, uh, That's like let me, let me explain to you the origins of um, that spelling, the Latin. That, no. Uh, and we also have Natalie Watson in some kind of studio. Somehow. Uh, somehow, after somehow, at, at great someday. length, after great pain. Yes. Shout out Staccato, the fucking champ of getting me set up to record today. It was a struggle. But here we be. He's our champion, and here we be. Thank you, so. champion. Was the solution the trash can in the end? No, the solution in the end was the original... Resetting everything. Was resetting everything and going back to the original thing we wanted to do. I so, I think the TV, the the TV uh, fried temporarily uh, Kato's sound card, and then now it is alive again. So, shout-outs to Resurrection. All right. Thank you, Jesus, praise, the TV. Yeah, yes. praise resurrection, uh, praise Jesus. All right, uh, so our first waypoint for this week is something we've all been watching. It has sort of taken the internet by storm, uh, and that is, of course, tidying up with Marie Kondo. And Natalie, this was your waypoint uh, to, to begin with. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit, for, for the handful of people who have not come across the takes yet, what is uh-huh. Tidying Up with Marie Kondo? So Tidying Up with Marie Kondo is a Netflix, is a produced by Netflix uh, mm-hmm. series, produced and uh, made by Netflix. It's um, got the Netflix logo. <laughs> it's got the Netflix logo on it. Who knows? Um, a series a, consisting of about eight episodes, I believe, in which Marie Kondo, who is a New York Times bestselling author known for her book, The Art of Tidying Up, bring uh sorry just adjusting my microphone um she had to tidy the mic i had to tidy the mic you know what 
now I've been I finally sparked joy. <laughs> Everything um, about this recording's been joy sparking, let me tell you. Yeah, you know, it sure has. So, uh she wrote she wrote this book called The Art of Tidying Up. Um originally she was uh a consultant for people who for her organization is who needed her organizational skills. Um and then because her wait list became so 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 long that she decided to write this book so that it could reach a wider audience and after that um a couple years later they came out with i don't know how how long but they came out with an illustrated version of that book which is called spark joy i believe and then the show uh which has just come out recently uh within the past month or a couple weeks actually because time is not real and uh i I was first introduced to Marie Kondo because my father <laughs> gave my mom the book and was like, for Christmas or something, was like, here you go. And my mom was like, got the message. And I'll say that's like, that's a gift and also a judgment. Happy for sure. wife, happy life. So this was pre-divorce. Yeah. <laughs> this was... <laughs> I don't know at what point this actually happened, if it was pre my parents' uh, separation or... Because if that's if that's a gift you give your ex for Christmas, it what a been, move! What a move! Been, that's... It could have been. It could have been. I mean, it's complicated. You could still be a better person. Slide this across the table. <laughs> it's complicated. There's still my... time for you, too. My so what is, what is this method? Why like why is there's a million books about how to organize your stuff more efficiently, organize your life, be be more efficient. What about Marie Kondo? Like, why do you think Marie Kondo connected so much with people? Uh, what what is her method? I mean, it's fascinating because my boyfriend actually sent me like Google Trend of our Google search trend or whatever of the phrase or like the term Marie Kondo in the past four years. And it only just spiked like this in the past couple weeks. So previously, I know that she was like on Good Morning America, I think. She's like done sort of the the promo circuit after her book came out. Um, but I don't think she was, I mean, she definitely wasn't a meme until like not the a past household couple name. Weeks. It's probably someone that you you, you know some people like. Yeah, I feel like the you know the organization lady. Like you know yeah. like you could kind <laughs> right. of scratch at your head, but like, I hadn't actually totally knowing her name before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's something that like people encountered when talking about like sort of self help or organizational books because she's probably mm. one of the more she's one of the names you can associate with that. One of the more well known names that that people have that association with. But I think the thing uh, for me. Watching the show finally allowed me to see in practice what the book was about, which I think made a huge difference in actually being able to see the process and also the final result of what the method can do. And so the method in its fundamentally is not about getting rid of stuff. And I think that's a crucial part, and that's what people often refer to as as sort of the magic of it is that it's not it's not hoarders, you know what I mean? Like it's interesting to see the types of households that she go to because some of them are like some hoarder like tendencies but it's not like they're not but it's not yeah in hoarders which i watched a lot of that show i watched a lot of that show too um yeah it was just 
junk food. Um, you know, it, you'd find dead animals. There's like I mean, a, like, yeah, there's like an unhygienic, like, yeah. like unsanitary thing to it. And Hoarders is like... Uh, also my deeply mom and exploitative, I, right? Like, yeah, I yeah. watched it at a time where like I didn't quite understand, like looking back, I was like, yeah, that show is just like taking advantage of people. I mean, hopefully they end up at the other side that, you know, their lives are better. Right. But the way it's like, right. boom, 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 like next on Hoarders, like look at this pile of shit. Um, but there's a reason right. why the majority of people you see on Hoarders are from a low socioeconomic mm-hmm. class. Like there's yep. a reason why people and and this is a mentality that i i grew up with is like we save shit because because it costs more to have to go out and buy shit again and so yeah my mom is gonna buy like the 12 pack of deodorants or whatever at costco and and buy everything in bulk because that even to spend more at one time will mean to save less in the future. And that's like a specific mentality that can lead to, you know, accumulating so much stuff that it becomes overwhelming. Um, And so, um, and so Marie Kondo differs from that because Marie Kondo is about confronting, confronting the, what you actually have, like materially, like, like tangibly, like, what do you own? Um, and the way that she does that is by each step of the process. The first step is clothing. The next step is um, uh, not kimono. Or is the next step kimono? It might be. Kitchen? Oh, no, no. Kitchen? The first step is uh, is uh, uh, clothing. The next step is uh, books and paper. And the last step is kimono, which includes kitchens, bathrooms, miscellaneous items, sentimental items. And so with, within each of these categories, the first step of the process is to arrange everything you own within that category. For example, the clothing, to pull all of your clothing from around the house and put it in one pile in one place. And then one by one, you pick up each article of clothing and you see if it, what she, her coined phrase is sparks joy. And it is a very, in the way that Marie approaches material things, it is about reconnecting with the the sentimentality and the like emotional value of these things. Because a lot of the times people are like, well, I don't love this thing. This doesn't spark joy for me, but it's necessary. Like it is a necessary thing. And I think there can be a little bit of a disconnect there, but she's always accommodating to that as far as I've seen in the show. But it is about taking things and really seeing like, do these, like, do I have a connection with this thing, with this shirt that makes me feel good? Like that when I wear it, I feel like a good in my core being. And then if it doesn't, it's about, she says, to thank the item for if it's something I never wore, showing me the things that I do like. If it's something that I wore a lot, but is like can no longer be used to thank it for like the years of you know, of, of service that it, it did for you. And I think that's, and to go one by one and you see mm-hmm. her like slowing down people in this process. You see her like saying like, you know, don't just toss it. Don't just like throw it, you know, no, it's like, take, take the time to really appreciate the shit that you have um, because it'll make you a more conscious person of your material possessions. Well, and, and I think like a big part of this is, 
Yes, it's about considering what is your relationship to the stuff. You have a relationship with your possessions. You may not be cognizant of that relationship, but I think mm-hmm. the essence of this method is uncovering like what is that relationship the the Mm -hmm. feeling when you pick up a well-loved object of i'm glad i have this like i'm glad this is in my life that that sort Mm -hmm. of you know pleasure of a beloved book or a really useful tool you use every day that's really comfy sweater that like just makes you feel warm and fuzzy like it is like so much of a physical reaction like she encourages people to like think of like the physicality of the emotion behind the relationship and I think the the flip side is something I found really useful is this idea of thanking objects because I have trouble throwing away things that I once cared for a lot but no longer suit my needs that no longer the guilt. matter to me. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole like act of like sort of mourning or like saying farewell to a thing that like meant something to you. Mm-hmm. It isn't going to fit with where you're going next, what you need right now. I think that's mm-hmm. that's really useful. But this whole idea of considering relationships, of looking at what is your relationship to your stuff, how does how does your stuff affect your relationship to your to your life, to others? Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is where uh, tidying up the Marie Kondo begins to become what we more classically recognize as a reality show. It's not just organizational porn. It is mm-hmm. uh it is a reality ass reality show. And uh mm-hmm. you know, you know, Patrick, I'm I am curious um you know, uh, what did you what did you make of that aspect of the show in terms of the way it is trying to dramatize the act of ultimately cleaning your goddamn house? Yeah, I like episode to episode, it's like it's sort of weak. I often felt like you could tell episode to episode, you know, like where they picked families and then like didn't necessarily find as much to like sort of mine out of the characters of those people. Um, in, uh, you know, I think we, I watched three episodes, the first episode, um, which is a, a yeah, a, a couple with two kids. Uh, the second episode, which is an, uh, an older couple who's, they're kind of like empty nesters, right? They're dealing with like, how do we, transition to retirement and then on everyone else's recommendation i watched like the sixth or seventh episode which is about um uh uh, two men uh in a relationship who are like dealing with their parents or one of their parents coming to visit like their house for the first time um and i don't know i yeah the, the reality show part i think is like it's okay um i don't watch a lot of reality shows i used to watch a lot of trashy reality tv but not as much these days um but i found like the stories of like that first one about the the the, the parents with the um uh, the children and the, the 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 two men in the relationship to be like really compelling characters where it like was able to like tightly explore their relationship with objects like the, the more it could drill down on the relationship with the objects the more it like made the whole arc of like kind of picking up little things that you were writing down like about man i looked at how you fucking fold those shirts and i was like yeah it makes sense you can see all the shirts when you pull that makes sense that's just that's an improvement all around yeah so fuck the space is i just often wear the same shirts because they're on top and it's like if i had could see them all I would wear more shirts. Um, but I, I, you know, I, uh, I know, uh, Danielle, that you had like a really powerful reaction to a lot of the, the characters. And I'm curious, I'm curious, you know, you know, especially because we don't have much time with you before you have to, to, to bounce. I want, I wanted you to, to give you a chance to sort of elaborate on your own reaction. Sure. Yeah. I had a really surprising, uh, reaction to myself, surprising to myself, uh, reaction to the show. And I, sh- I should go in saying, I, I hate minimalism in general. 
Uh, it is Whoa. for a reason. Whoa. It has always been associated for me with like the very like tech bro, like efficiency equals better human being. Like get it's rid super of all classist. this shit. Yeah. Yes. Like extremely classist, extremely like, I don't even wash my shirts. I just throw them out. Like it's more efficient to just do X, Y, or Z. Like it, it's always been associated with that for me, which I, I know is a very limited view. It's just that is, that is what That's got fair. thrown in That's my fair. face at enough of a formative age that I associated it with that. So I don't. I don't generally like this sort of thing. Although I thought Marie was lovely. Uh, she's a compelling character. She's wonderful and compelling and, uh, you know, fun to watch and, and always, uh, I, I think her method seems to make sense. It, it actually seems like a very moderate method of figuring out what you actually need, what you actually want. So I, I thought that was perfectly good. Um, but I I hated this show so much and I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, I spent like four hours sobbing last night uh, watching this show. It really deeply deeply upset me and i don't think it's the show's fault necessarily um i think i'm in a weird ass place in my life where uh i saw a happy couple uh with two kids and a house um and i'm about to turn 35 and i was sort of writing something about this yesterday and i don't think it's gonna happen so i'll just say it here i'm about to turn what is considered uh advanced maternal age to have a biological child i no longer have a long-term partner that was something that happened this year uh, where I thought this was something I was going to have in my life, basically. Um, and so I sort of I, I don't watch a ton of uh, reality TV shows. I don't I don't watch a ton of sitcoms. I don't watch a ton of things where it's like ha generally happy people in their house with their kids. You know, <laughs> like it's not really a type of media I engage with all that often, to be honest. Uh, so I sat down to watch this and I was like, all right, Marie, hit me with your best shot. And I within 10 minutes, I was like angrily jealously scrawling all the things i hated about these people and then it kept going on and on and i was like oh no i'm encountering some very deep ugly jealousy within myself right now this was the life i was always uh, you know growing up in a very heteronormative society this was the life i was supposed to have this is the life my parents wanted me to have and and these people are terrible at communicating with each other. They need some DBT. They need some therapy. They need some fucking good-ass therapy, and they're going to be okay. They just need to learn how to communicate with each other. They need to learn to communicate needs and boundaries. And I'm just sitting there going through all of this, and then I start fucking sobbing, like truly sobbing. And I was like, this is really embarrassing. I am sobbing. At this dumb reality show that is supposed to make people happy and feel okay about their lives and feel like there is something to, there is some method to the madness. There, there are things you can do in your life to, to maybe make your life a little easier and to maybe make things a little better for your, you and your loved ones. So, uh, so I basically had a midlife crisis last night. Well, <laughs> Thank you, Marie Kondo. It's totally understandable though, because the reality, because again, the reality <laughs> TV framing in a lot of these episodes yeah. is. There is something badly amiss in this family's life, and it is because their clothes are not properly folded, and they have too much stuff. And I totally understand. Like, I mean, I think about how that show would have landed for me when I was in a one-bedroom, overpriced in Cambridge, like, living, frankly, not quite making it paycheck to paycheck. And, you know what I mean? Like, all the shit that was going down. And then you're watching the show that it's a lot of couples that I would, like maybe called yuppies years ago, like lots of people who's like, lives are going pretty well by the standard of where I spent a lot of my 20s and early 30s, where a lot of my friends find themselves uh, right now. And there's an element of, the show's like dramatizing this 
you know, can they really like come to terms with each other and their clothes collection? And there's this part of me, it's like, fuck you, you don't got a problem. Like <laughs> what? You got you got two beautiful kids, a relationship that was only dysfunctions, or you guys are fucking it up, and a beautiful house that's full of too much stuff, and you're coming at me with like, oh man, we really need to address this. Like, fuck off. Like, I totally get having that reaction. And yet, there's something compelling about those stories. It's, but I, I totally get it. Like, it, that show is, is presenting a lot of, it, it is the most, for a lot of these people, it's the most like first world problems the show, uh, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And I think that is exaggerated by the way the TV production ends up heightening what are pretty bog standard like domestic tensions. Well, and, and yeah. I, I think that's where, like, some of these episodes are stronger or weaker, right? Like, the two men, I think, actually, like, it, it uses the objects to, like, have a larger contextual understanding of their relationship, like, their place in society. Like, that's, you know, of the three episodes I watched, like, that was the one that was the most effective at, like, from beginning to oh, see, end. I hated that one. Really? Why? Because to me, it was like they were trying to force this narrative on, like, can this can this kid can this well, can the parental this guy thing, prove yes. to yeah, his the dad? Thing the parental thing was bullshit. Like, they're, they're like loving parents that have always loved them from the beginning. Like that, like ten, the, the ten, like they were trying to build a sort of thing that was like, well, in the end, like these homophobic parents are going to walk in the door and be like, you're not, not my son. That that part, you're, you're right. That part didn't work. But I think all the stuff like. The meat of it, right? Like the the, yeah. the the middle of it when it's like the two of them going through their stuff, like the subtle tensions between them as they're going, like going. Like I thought that stuff worked that like, pretty was effectively. Good. But the, I think what, I, go on. I need to see that one. I saw the first three. Like to be clear, I watched the first three episodes, and like by 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 number three, I had like friends on speed dial. I was like, "Am I a worthless woman? Is my worth as a woman like?" determined by all of these societal factors why does got, kevin have it all and i it don't got to that did you it got to that last the, night is the third one yeah. the one in which the family from michigan da- yes. like moved to la okay so the that's that's a really interesting one space. because that's someone yeah. th- that's a family that went from like a four-bedroom home and packed up everything and moved into a two-bedroom apartment in la and right like the uh but i do want to say really quick that in in terms of the gay couple like i can see that being like some deeply internalized like what were my parents expectations of me like i didn't do the and he talks the, about that he and he want, talks like, about he talks yeah. about that and like even if that's not what we see on t- like television like there there could be you know different things there like we don't know his history or whatever with with that that journey um but the the family that downsized from Michigan to LA had such a a, a resounding. That's the first episode I watched because I accidentally watched it out of order, and that one <laughs> fucked me up because that was straight up my mom, um, you know, yeah. having the job of knowing everything, knowing where everyone's shit is, and my brother and I being the laziest fucks. And not like <laughs> contributing at all, and my mom doing everything for everyone, and 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 then in the first one, like hearing the guys say like, when I come home, I want the house to be clean, and like re- like recalling fucking huge huge arguments that my parents would get into when I was a kid about the house not being clean because of me and my fucking brother, and my mom just like 
literally trying to do her best. And so a lot of those things, I, I also had like a very strong emotional reaction, Danielle, mm-hmm. but I think mine was more seated, less in, less in myself and more like my experience growing up with my parents and their subsequent separation. Um, and it was in a way cathartic to see that, but it it was like, it it was it was painful. It was like it was really really painful because I I fucking I was there so many times and I did not contribute. And you know, you can't help but to feel as a child of like divorce. Like there's all sorts of feelings of like guilt and like what could I have done and what did I do wrong and how could I have like made their shit work. And so um, the emotional I was sobbing every episode. All episodes. Well, I've not. I've, I saw the episode that's about a spouse putting away the clothes of like the recently passed. Oh, yeah, that one was. That was. Other. A, yeah, that was the second one I watched. That and, one was really. Ha- having gone through that process with my mother five years ago, like I was like, at some point I'll watch this. This I was like, oh, that's the episode when I've like I'm done drinking for the night. I don't want to go to bed yet. I need to be in like a specific place to watch this. Where I'm just like ready to just like lose my mind, <laughs> and like, yeah. uh, and it'll be cathartic. Like it'll be it'll be cathartic to watch someone else go through like a deeply uh, uh, painful emotional process that I helped my mother and my family go through, um, and we did that ourselves years ago. Um, and the, the the first one with the couple was interesting too because like they were portraying a very like typical gender dynamic in which yeah. it is often um, so much of like the housework is put on. Um, you know, the, the woman that's staying at home that is both taking care of the kids and taking care of the house. And, like, that specific conversation they were having about, like, oh, well, when the father would come home and, like, he'd point out, like, well, why isn't this taken care of? You know, the subtext being, like, you were home all day. And so in my relationship with my wife, like, we have the reverse of that. So, like, I'm at home. I am, like, a – take a larger share of the caretaking with uh, our child. I'm also – I work from home. So, like, I'm doing a lot of the cleaning of the house and, like, tidying, like – I don't turn off the annoying uh, uh, Apple Watch, like, remind you to stand every hour because I use that as a reminder to just, like, get up and just go do something around the house for a couple of minutes. So it's like I'll fold laundry or I'll do some dishes. And, like, that's just, like, a thing that gets me up and doing stuff. But, like, I remember when right after we had our kid and, like, we would have those moments where my wife would be like, well, how – like – how did this get done? And like she wouldn't say like you were home all day, but like mm, like that's <laughs> that was the message that was coming across. And it's, it was kind of like, ma'am, uh, <laughs> I had X. You know, I worked today. I just have. You know what I mean? It's like it was fine. We worked through all that stuff, um, and and communicated our way through like what is my relationship to the house. Like there were the convert. Like there were the other thing. What happened with me is like because I'm home. I see all the flaws in the house, the things that we haven't done, and it bothers mm-hmm. me so much more than it bothers her, right? So it's like we have done so little. Uh, we, we are very, the house is very clean. We don't have that much clutter. Like I, when I moved to San Francisco originally, I just got in a mentality of like I just don't keep shit. Like I just throw stuff out all the time. So we're very tidy in that regard. But um, we have barely put up anything in the house in terms of like pictures and posters. And it drives me up a wall. Like, we've been here for two years. How have we not found the time to do this? And she comes home. She's been at work all day. She just wants to come home and have a glass of wine. Not worry about the fact that, like, the guest room doesn't have anything. It just has a couple of nails in the wall where I'm like, you know, we really got to come up with a plan to, like, deal with these rooms and, like, figure out how we're going to do this. And she's like, 
not like this is the last thing I want to think about. Like we're gonna have this house for thirty years. Like <laughs> we got a big loan. Um, so like that's the flip side for me, where my relationship with our house is so different because I stare at the <clears throat> stuff we haven't done all day, and it bothers me. Uh, Danielle, I think you have to go take yes. a certification course in life New York emergency State medicine. EMT refresher exam for the next three years, so I can so I can go into other people's houses <laughs> and deal with their emergencies, basically. Uh, but this has been fun, Marie Marie Kondo. I'm sorry I hate your show so much, but you're lovely. But those are my my closing words. You can find me at Twitter at Danielle Ri, where I will sob tweet about the show now, not with uh, subtweeting. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Adios. Bye. Uh, it's, I, one thing I'm curious about for for our, all y'all is um, I've, like, read some sort of, like, characterization of, like, how Marie as a character is inserted into the show. And I think the show does a good job of not, like, sort of, like, othering her or being, like, it's – well, it's weird because, like, that's part of her personality, right? Like, it's part of her shtick is that she's sort of, like, a magic fairy that comes in and, like, helps fix your house. I mean, um, I, I don't want to call it a sh- – I think it is like a f- I would like be I don't want like there have been a lot of conversations on the internet recently that have been super fetishizing, super exoticizing, like have positioned Marie like like any sort of positioning her in this like s- sort of fairy t- like fairy way, I think is um the show certainly edits in a it way. It definitely that, that... edits because it is it is made for like an American audience. And right. well, like when she, you know, she does this thing where when she comes into the house, she like likes to um, greet the house by uh, and and thanking it for letting her come in by uh, 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 sitting. De- uh, she she kneels in the traditional like formal Japanese way of like respect, and she like bows. To, she like takes a moment of of you know. Uh, silence and then bows to the house um which is a like in traditional japanese culture is like a a very very respectful you know uh uh act uh, an act of respect um and so i i uh, one of my biggest frustrations is like that the characterization of her as this sort of like magical fairy because she is a person um and she has it is it is her that is like her i don't i don't know how to say this like it's her I guess way I, I, what of i being, like try to work yeah. through in the show is like how much is her brand and how much mm. is like the lens of american culture and editing her in a certain way because like i mean it's her show right so like right. we have no idea like she's like, an executive about- she's an executive producer right. on the show um, but yeah, when she, when she's doing that kneeling thing, there's like very like serene music that like plays in the background when she like does this, um, greeting. Um, and so, and so, yeah, like- and that shit feels like, okay, this is like the, like super, and then it pans to like everyone watching her. She like invites some people to like do it with her, like take a moment to do it with her. In the first episode, she, you know, asks the couple to like take a moment to do it as well. And you see them like kind of become emotional mm-hmm. um but but it is just like it is it is her way and in the i haven't i haven't read the book in a long time and i don't know and i haven't finished it so i don't know how much of this is actually in her books as well but it's but this is the first time that we're we're seeing this right so i i i, I do wonder how like 
what the editing does but i i do think it is just like fundamental it has to do with like like her conceptions of like objects and material things like ha- like having like spiritual value mm-hmm. um which i yeah that's just that's like her her conception and is and is a conception like they're they're um, it is not a conception that Americans typically have with material um, items, and yeah, so or at least that they're not conscious of. Again, there's that element right. of just consider. Like there is this aspect of she is giving people a framework to look at their possessions and their lives from a different angle, mm-hmm. and I think what something I do like in the show is that. I think there's a it would have been very easy to for the show to like really lean into exoticizing but there's frequent places where she is allowed to sort of like give her take on what she is seeing what she's encountering like there is such a good scene in the first episode um where <laughs> where uh the mom is standing in their newly cleaned kitchen and she's like telling marie pardon she's beaming yeah and she's telling marie yeah you know he just um you know my husband he just he was saying to me the other day like you know this this cleaning stuff is is sexy you know it's it's and he's (laughs) he's the neat freak in the relationship he is the one who like looks around their house and all he sees is the ways it is deficient and a disorganized chaotic hellhole and it stresses him the hell out and so you know, the, here here comes Marie a couple days later, and uh, you know the, uh, the the wife in this pairing is saying, you know, he says it's 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 sexy this this cleaning this organizing, and Marie gives this look, she just like closes her eye and basically she just cringes basically, <laughs> and it's just she just says like really noncommittally, that is a very American way of looking at it. Yeah, and I think that was. Useful insofar as I don't think that was just about like a I don't think that's just a comment on like two different cultures. I think there was an aspect of Marie Kondo also being given a space to voice like her view of the dynamic she sees the ways people relate to their spaces, their possessions to each other, the way that stuff comes across to her. She is not just here to, this is not just, she comes in. That goes and, beyond like, just the, the instructional stuff of like, yeah. here's what you do with your, your mm-hmm. drawer when you pull mm-hmm. it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the show, I wish the show did more uh, to sort of humanize her. You get little bits and pieces of it you know like in that same first episode there's the the moment when they're in the garage and they're going through the 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 wedding photos and they're talking about an anniversary and then you know she mentions that she's here shooting this on her anniversary you know away from her her husband um and you know again i've only watched three episodes and the show is not about like the emotional journey of journey of marie kondo but i do i think part of my concern wonder about like you know brand personality approach is like i think that could have been uh mitigated a little bit if the if there was a little bit more of her in the show there's also the language barrier you know i mean there are all sorts of considerations for why you don't get more of that but i find the show to be like edited very strangely um Mm -hmm. in in a way that uh the show doesn't really often feels like it doesn't know 
what, what it, kind of show yeah, it is. If like, it's, is this a show about Marie coming in, commenting? Uh, is it about the families? Is it about Marie? What is the relationship between those two things? It shifts from episode to episode based on whatever seems to be the stronger arc between the two. But uh, it, it loses her often. Yeah. Um, and 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 often not necessarily, and often necessarily just in favor of like better characters, right? Like the, the you know the the queer couple, uh, they're really compelling characters, and they have a lot to say and and to contribute to the, the overall theme theme. But you know she's really lost in that episode yeah. uh, quite often, yeah. um, and that just seems to happen over and over. As probably, I mean, reality shows have hundreds of hours of shootings. Like they're making deliberate editing choices. Um, then unfortunately, sort of, sort of bury her and what she has to say often. Mm-hmm. Maria, first of all, man, she crushes it with kids, though. God damn! Every like, time that kid wanted to leap into her arms, I was so dying. Cute. Damn, that was like great. as that's someone it, when the two-year-old says boobies. <laughs> that was there's so many good moments in that first episode. That first episode is is choice, but I also think there's something. It was it was like that moment in the garage is really sad because like. This whole, again, considering your relationship to objects and such, like, Marie is finding all this, like, detritus from their wedding and the earlier days of their relationship and, like, sort of these mementos of, like, their happiness and their relationship just sort of tossed into the garage. And, like, it was kind of a, like, kind of upsetting sequence as Marie, like, Marie recognizes, like, these are important things. It is... Like she marvels at them. She loves like she thinks they're sweet photos. They you know they it's it's very sweet. They have these, but also she's kind of pointing out that like, hey, this is stuff that shouldn't. Yeah, what just are be... these doing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are these behind the fucking golf clubs? Basically, is and I don't know. It was a sort of a really great moment because I think in a lot of the takes that have come out about this show, um, there's a lot of exaggerations about the advice that Kondo gives that people oh, are yeah. People are acting as if Kondo's um, marching orders basically are to burn your possessions. Uh, like there's the whole you know book lovers backlash of uh, just taking umbrage at the idea that Marie Kondo thinks you should limit your library size, which you know honestly probably a good idea. Uh, but also the um, notion that she just encourages you to just purge your stuff. No, she encourages you to get rid of things that you no longer have a like positive connection to. with. Yeah. 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 Um and I think what was great in that episode is it's, it's an example of she's not just a minimalist coming in here and say get rid of stuff. She's just mm-hmm. pointing out that there are things about the things we own that that reveal things about us that we have relationships to. Uh and I thought it was a really great moment about her uncovering kind of an uncomfortable fact of a dynamic in that relationship that's opened up where this is a couple that <laughs> both literally and metaphorically has kind of cast aside a lot of memories and understandings of why they're together in the first place. Well, they, they, if they tap into, I think a, a thing that any uh, parenting couple can eminently relate to is just how much you put aside yourself the moment you become a parent. Cause there really is no time. And like, with that episode, like by virtue of like going through the objects and like forcing them to reexamine that, like smartly uncovers something that parenting couples know very well. But you know, um, it's nice to see some wider exposure and like how um, not that you should feel bad that people chose to to become parents. Like this is you know a choice people uh, often make, um, but just how little time you give to yourself 
um, in that process and how a relationship can de- deteriorate as a result. And by Marie coming in and giving a hierarchy to, like, your objects, like, I mean, it's really interesting. There was a comment from the wife when she was going through this whole process where she said, um, you know, uh, we should have these wedding photos out so that when we have a fight, we're reminded of, like, why we started doing this shit in the first place mm-hmm. when you're drowning and two kids screaming and running yeah. around and you you want to, you know, strangle each other. Um, like, that's the power of an object, which, like, gets to the core of, like, Marie's philosophy is, like, you can have all the stuff. It's just a hierarchy to it. It's a priority system. And, and prioritizing the stuff that has meaning to you and the idea of, like, having, you know, not necessarily happiness, but just things that are imbued with, with power and meaning that are, like, closely accessible, I think, you know, you know, I don't... Again, as someone that doesn't have a ton of stuff, but I certainly came away thinking like, yeah, that's like right. Like there are things I have buried away that whenever I go through that drawer, I'm like, wow, that means a lot to me. I wish I could see that more often. And, you know, I'll probably hopefully go through and and find some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last thing I want to just sort of raise here is there have been a lot of different versions of this line of critique on the KonMari uh, method. Uh, But a listener sent in an article from The Atlantic uh, Marie Kondo and the Privilege of Clutter. But basically it is examining sort of the KonMari method through the experience of, uh, say, immigrants. Uh, you know, people who have had to leave their old home and start anew somewhere else. Uh, and the idea of... It is very easy to say, like, simplify your life, purge your possessions if you haven't had to abandon a great deal in the past, if you haven't lost a great deal in the past. But that is a... Much harder and more complicated um, ask if you're making it of families who, in their in their experience uh, across generations, have had to forcibly say goodbye to a lot of things that they had like powerful and meaningful connections to, and also the 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 real the the great importance that old possessions and mementos uh, start to form within within the within families like that um i thought it was a good i i I thought it was a good point to raise i'm not necessarily sure that marie kondo would disagree with it but certainly the way her method is being applied uh would seem to fit with that with that line of line of criticism but i thought it was a interesting point and i'm curious what you what y'all made of it yeah i mean i think uh i mean i think there is a moment of that uh not not but about you know cultural ties and things like that when um the uh in the episode this is not one that that i think y'all watched but there is an episode um with uh sorry um i believe she sorry edit this out kato <laughs> hold on I want to get this right because I don't want to get this wrong. Uh, was she Pakistani? Uh, Sunita. Da, 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 da. Uh, this episode was... Yeah, sorry. Okay, here we go, Gato. <laughs> um, where in in the episode where uh uh there's a uh a biracial couple um and the uh, uh marie finds a bunch of shawls of the uh, the wife is pakistani and she finds a bunch of like her pakistani shawls in uh, a dresser in her 
son's closet and is like, do these bring you joy? And then there's a, this moment where um, she's talking, her name's Sunita, about, you know, the fact that she lives uh, in an area where there is not a large Pakistani community and these are her cultural ties. And, and, and I do think Marie does adjust for that. I mean, she's not saying, you know, like she, there's not a moment to showcase that adjustment. I, there's not a, like she does keep her shawls and there's not a moment where uh marie is like culture like she that's not in her method she doesn't talk about she talks about sentimental objects and if you have sentimental objects that you feel are important to you keep them um but i do but i, I and i do agree that the like the kanmari method or whatever or minimalism as a uh, which is separate from the kanmari method but shares some similarities um is you know my mom was an immigrant she uh migrated to this com- uh country when she was 17 and and i feel like that informs she came with nothing and she that informs a lot of her uh mentality when it comes to holding on to things she she has like tons of like random watermelon things around the house that like to anyone else they're junk but to her they're like precious 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 items and and in all the other things, like I said before, like uh, making sure that if something, if a light bulb goes out, that we have more, that if, you know, if anything happens in emergency, like it is a very like sort of like survivor uh, uh, perspective to take to items in, in the sense that like I need all these for like in case shit hits the fan and it's like apocalypse time, you know, like if if so. I, I think it's complicated and I I would hesitate to say that Kondo is like is like critiquing any of those sorts of things mm-hmm. I just don't think she's ever had to account for them because that's not her background her background is like helping like families presumably wealthy probably I don't know I, ain't I don't know I don't know uh, I, yeah I know like who style. hires a consultant like uh, you know that have the the ability to hire her. I don't know where her like day rate is or whatever, but like my guess is that this is like these aren't things that she's like confronted before, and that's where you see like adjustments in in her method. That's where you see like you know when uh the woman who uh 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 lost her husband, the the recent widow. Um, wants to do the sentimental objects first. She wants to deal with her husband's items first. And Kanmari, uh, or sorry, Marie Kondo, always says, you know, like do those last because by then you've like fine tuned the skill of like being able to separate objects and to identify joy and all those things. You've refined it so much that it'll be an easier process. But she allows for it. She's not sh- chiding her or shaming her. And I think like the exaggeration of like memes on the internet has like made this. Yeah so like uh she always comes across as just recommending like it's yeah it's, these are like it's, helpful it's... she's trying to be like uh these are like helpful suggestions she's never but an asshole be- about it but because it's like so it's tied to this like larger concept of like minimalism and things like that like i think it brings up a lot of like really like important emotions of like you know this doesn't work for everyone and it also like yeah, I don't know. It's not just about like American consumerism. It's not just about like, you know, America, like wealthy Americans like 
accumulating a lot of like stuff and then you know the stuff is outdated but they keep it because they don't think about it or whatever like that carelessness like there's there's so much at play and I just don't think she's had to account for that before and so we're seeing it happen in real time through the show um so I and even and even if you end up disagreeing with her method or or some of the like you know some of the consequences or unforeseen consequences as you're as you're pointing out Natalie I mean what's useful about the existence of the method and then the usefulness of the existence of the show is like it's a reason to like talk through that stuff right like the existence of it is then leading to conversations about people's relationships to things to objects to what is otherwise you know to another person maybe considered junk as, as you put it and like that's like really useful and insightful to see. Uh, because it's not really like a conversation we have. We you see other people's stuff. You may assume why they have X, Y, and Z, but you know the the notion, the basic notion of the show of just articulating your relationship to an object is is cool. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, we will take a little break there, and uh, I'll be back with the uh, second waypoints of today's show. But first, uh, maybe an ad, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Hopefully, whatever you heard sparked joy. Uh, but oh, boy. In the meantime, <laughs> yeah, who knows, right? Uh, gosh, who, who knows what you just heard? Uh, maybe if it was not, just a think little it. commercial jingle. And cast it away yeah uh so my waypoint this week was an article by claire kelloway in washington monthly called how to close the democrats rural gap which is a title i don't love because it's not really about no that piece has almost nothing to do with it no it's not a how-to here's how we can turn you know kansas blue or anything like that um it's actually a much better piece that really starts digging into what has been happening uh, in rural communities in the United States across uh, the past, you know, 10, 20 years and why there is such a growing crisis of poverty and lack of economic opportunity uh, in, in rural areas and why uh, voters in a lot of those places do with, with a great deal of justification uh, resent Democrats for for that, and I thought it was a really good piece because it gives a decent survey of the problems facing rural communities, starting with farmers, but really lip- rippling out to everyone uh, who is who, who lives in these communities, and then also the way that a lot of policies that we do not think about or we do not pay attention to have contributed to increasingly desperate circumstances uh, in these areas. And like, I was really taken aback 
by some of the stuff I was reading and uh, really kind of amazed by how much of this stuff has been allowed to happen in plain sight without anybody ever really acknowledging it as a problem. Um, I, I guess the place where I would start is in the central dilemma of this piece is that one of the major things that has happened to farmers uh, since the 80s, certainly, uh, but now it is worse than it has ever been, is that agricultural firms have consolidated to an unprecedented degree. Uh, basically, in terms of agricultural products and supplies, you're looking at like three or four companies that effectively control that market. There's three or four countries that are selling seeds, that are selling fertilizer, uh, agricultural, other agricultural products. That's that's who controls the market. And then when it comes time to sell crops or livestock, um, once again, you have three or four firms dealing with these uh, sort of raw agricultural outputs. And so on either end of this equation, farmers end up having to buy from a market that is basically highly oligopolistic and effectively controlled by three or four firms. Yeah, it's a co-monopoly. Co yeah. <laughs> we all agreed to, we, we all are technically profiting from this separately. But, you know, I think there's a quote in there where they're like, well, yes, there are several companies that could go to to argue prices, but when chances are they've gone behind our backs we'll and already yeah. agreed to what the price is. And this happens like the airline industry yep. all the time when you like slowly see when, when one company decides to get the bad press and say, look, okay, we're going to we're gonna charge for, you know, baggage fees, right? Like that, that didn't used to be a thing. And then now it's a thing. It's like one person does it. Everyone hates it. Then they all do it. And that's because they've all collectively agreed, you know, you know, you know, and maybe not in a, uh, a legal sense, but certainly um, right up to the line. Um, and we hear about these things all the time in like goods that we have like a more personal relationship with. And I think what this article does like really well is illustrating and walking you through how you do have a personal relationship with this stuff, even if it's not like fully understood when you go to the store and, oh, you know, the, you know, the meat is 10 cents yeah. cheaper mm -hmm. than or 10 cents more expensive than it was six months ago. I had a well, sorry, I had a question. Yeah. Mm. Um, so when I was reading this, um, there are people quoted from like farmers association, like national farmers associations and things like that. And something I was curious about is like are are farmers like unionized or like do the, do these associations even offer like legal legal protections or are these because I'm wondering like how the fuck did this happen and uh like is there is is the association anything more than like a bigger voice um so I am going to betray my ignorance here if I talk too much about that type of stuff. Like, okay. those things do not operate as unions. They operate, I believe, effectively as like lobbying groups. It's like far, like a, a farmer's chamber of commerce in some mm, ways. Okay. But effectively, a lot of these things are they're organizations that exist for regional farmers to uh, bring their concerns and lobby on their behalf to like state governments, to gotcha. federal governments. But like, Effectively, they are professional organizations that don't confirm any like meaningful material benefits. I don't mm -hmm. think. Well, and there are unions, but the, the what's what those unions are even getting screwed by are things that are not within their control, right? Like it's like there may be a unionization of a certain level of farmers, but what they're getting screwed by is the relationship to the um, consolidation of like seed manufacturers, yeah. right? 
um, in which like there's you know that that bit in the, the piece where it's like it used to be that you would plant your crops and you could keep some of the seeds that come through those crops and then you would use that in the next harvest and it's like now there are contractual relationships where these you know uh, 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 these like specifically designed seeds because they're now an IP like you can't save those right like you can't save and use them like they're yeah Monsanto owns ends. the copyright to those like owns the yes. patent to those seeds and you cannot. Continue. I think in some cases, some of the uh, gen- gen- genetically uh, modified crops will not even, like, you can grow produce. the crop, but it's not going to produce a viable seed at the end of it. Uh, I think some right. of them, like, even even that uh, By design. happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, the, the, the figure that really stunned me is that effectively, like, prices that farmers get at uh, market haven't really changed the in 30 is years. The bushel one? Yeah, yeah, that was wild. Yeah, they were yeah. selling for, like... What was it? Three? Like- uh, yeah, I wrote it. I wrote it down. Uh, uh, quote: Recently, the president of the Nebraska uh, Farmers Union, John Hansen, um, looked up the corn prices from 1973 when he started farming. At that time, he sold corn for 3.30 a bushel. In 2017, the average price per bushel was uh, three dollars and thirty-three cents. Three cents. So it had gone up. Yeah. Three cents in uh, a number of decades in which the cost of living has, you know, forty gone years up. or more. And- the other figure being that uh, in the 1980s, when American consumers spent a dollar on food, 37 cents out of that dollar went back to the farmer. Today, farmers receive less than 15 cents on every dollar. You know, the margins have just been squeezed, and your ability to even negotiate along those margins has been squeezed even further because of the consolidation of, of your options. Well, and every um, year, farmers are going into debt to purchase their year's inputs for the growing season. Uh, and then they are recouping that debt, hopefully, uh, at harvest time when they right. sell their crops or livestock at market. Uh, so, again, this is again like why farmers are being foreclosed on at staggering rates is because when you are basically like literally betting the farm every single year, which has always been a threat with farming, but particularly now that the uh, rates are so controlled on either end, uh, a lot of farmers are literally – uh, you know, just barely surviving each each season. Uh, so the other part of this is like, how the hell did this happen? Um, and one of the there's a, there's a couple aspects here. One is that the government allowed the consolidation in the agricultural sectors to happen. Uh, you know, the mergers have to be approved, uh, and there were a number of mergers of agricultural firms that probably should have raised some antitrust flags and brought in some antitrust protections uh, to either prevent mergers or put conditions on them. And largely these things were rubber stamped. And so, you know, Washington basically uh, signed off on this market structure coming into force uh, for farmers. And then sort of th- this is, I guess, you know, this is an important part of like, where did the Democrats come into the story? Uh, well, memorably, Obama made this a campaign issue in oh, 2008. This, this paragraph, like these two paragraphs gutted me, Rob. Like just, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Obama makes this a campaign issue in 2008. Uh, you know, going back to the primaries where he really does need these uh, rural votes, but he's, he's listening to farmers and he's saying that, you know, there will be under his administration, they're going to push back against the takeover of corporate farming. And somewhat true to his word, uh, when he took office, uh, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack and the USDA 
proposed a bunch of regulatory changes uh, to address a lot of the things that farmers were telling them. And, and specifically, like this is mentioned later, where like they they got a bunch of farmers to come out and name names, mm-hmm. like name specific problems they were encountering, kinds of things that when said publicly, like, you know, easy to imagine backlash happening under, you know, above the table or below the table um, as a result of coming clean about the problems um, in the industry. And agriculture lobby rallied a lot of opposition on both sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill. And Vilsack and Obama just didn't, they, they still could have pushed these changes through. It's a regulatory change by the USDA. That didn't need congressional approval. They could have put these rules into place. They just didn't. And then 2010 happens. Uh, the GOP gets a majority and begins uh, enacting more measures to defend uh, major agricultural firms' interests. <laughs> well, then in 2010, Republicans took the House and began passing appropriations riders that stripped the USDA of the necessary funds to implement the rules, even if they had gone into effect. Yeah. But here's the other part of this. Uh, Tom Vilsack is now working as the head, the CEO of a massive dairying lobby lobby group that represents major agricultural uh, product firms. And so from the perspective of a lot of people living uh, in rural America, like it's pretty easy to see the degree to which you were sold out by, by both sides. Uh, but it's got to be especially galling to see that like the Democrats agriculture sec- secretary walked straight out of office and into the private sector uh, where he's making millions of dollars from the people he was supposed to police, uh, which happens all the fucking time. But again, this is kind of how we got to the place where we're at. And then sort of the, the final nail in this, in this coffin for, you know, what people are, aren't doing for rural regions is this notion that every time like, Center-left parties address things like rural poverty or economic uh, no, issues? I believe, uh, uh, Rob, they're called left behind right. know, areas. It's all Left behind. It's always in this really Like, there's so much to unpack from that term. Like, left behind presumes there's nothing left. That they are behind. There. Like, in... Right. Like who left them behind, right? And then, like, yeah, that the proposals from center left, like think tanks, are maybe they just fucking need some internet. Give them some high speed internet and coding classes. Yeah, farmers learn to code. Yeah, that's like that is the uh, message being put out by a lot of uh, supposedly progressive think tanks. This is a lot of the what policymakers are imagining as the future for rural communities and it's like deeply condescending and doesn't react to any of the uh the degree to which rural communities were like they didn't just wither and die they were they were killed by by market they're being slowly strangled basically they still exist they're just like a you know their bargaining power and 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 weight is just a a fraction of its former self and like you know the the reason this story ended up getting the headline that it did is because of how it ties into like the larger question of the Democratic Party and how they appeal to, you know, I mean, the undercurrent of this is like, well, how do you get people that probably voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump? Because they were like, well, fine, fuck the Democrats. Like, let's see if this guy goes and punches people in the nose. Um, Is that, well, you know, the Electoral College is the fact that, like, you know, Democrats have funneled themselves into, you know, largely coastal areas and even in the states where 
Um, they are redder. They're, you know, it's in these large blue cities and you're losing out on the, these whole rural areas. And policies like coding and high-speed internet, well, like that just funnels people into the into the spaces that were already like essentially wasting votes. And so mm-hmm. it's, like this, it's this like larger meta problem of like how do you find more votes while also uh, – you know, understanding that these people, like, ha- I mean, they have been left behind. It's just the way that that's, you know, phrased in center-left think tanks is in a sense that um, there's no actual way of bringing them back. When actually the way of bringing them back is just bringing back, like, old-school fucking, like, break up the companies, like, strip the monopolies. Like, you know, it's the kinds of things that people voted for in Trump, but yet actually is, like, much more part of the Democratic wing. They've just gotten away with it uh, or gotten away from it in, for, for decades now. Yeah. I mean, like Democrats have like are deeply implicated in a lot of these evolutions of, uh, you know, of of the agriculture sector. Um, Something else that this reminded me of is I think a couple months ago at this point, uh, the Washington Post post like published a really good uh, piece by a dairy farmer from Wisconsin, uh, Jim Goodman, retiring, uh, like explaining why he's retiring this year and why he sold his herd uh, and why he's just bailing out of the market. And it's a bleak piece, but I think one of the other eye-opening things here is that this is a guy who survived earlier disruptions in farming in part by becoming an organic uh, milk producer. Um, Get on the trend. Well, right. And he said this actually helped farmers in a lot of spaces because when organic when non-GMO, when organic uh, foods started to become a trend, when it started to become something that people were interested in, uh, a lot of farmers were ready, willing, and able to adapt to that, both because like, that's the kind of farming and like practices a lot of them prefer to be doing because it is easier on animals, it is easier on your land. Um, but also it did provide better prices. It was like it was a place you could go and you could differentiate your product and command a higher price for it. Um, and then he lists two things that happened. Uh, one is that big, like big agriculture companies saw that market and they came in and started to dominate it. But the other way they did it was they just like encouraged defining every standard downward so that it effectively became meaningless. So like, for instance, probably 15, 20 years ago, maybe like buying cage free eggs meant something almost Mm -hmm. certainly something claiming to be cage free at this point is probably a meaningless statement in terms of what conditions that actually reflects for the animals Mm. involved. And that is something that has happened across like every, like every product, every sector, this idea that, Oh, people want to live more sustainably, like consume more ethically. Great let's lower the standards for what any of the product like stickers we put on this, like any of the certification for it. Let's make those standards as low as possible so we can effectively do the same shit we've always done and then sell it to you for a buck more per unit. Yeah. Well, and that's mentioned earlier in the piece of like sort of like the trickle down effect of all of these problems is that, well, because the monopolies have, you know, reduced the the uh, the bargaining power on the part of farmers. It's reduced the margins. Well, once you've reduced the margins, you have to find efficiencies. Yep. How do you find efficiencies? And you find efficiencies through uh, cramming more animals closer together. Like, so you end up you end you don't think that oh, if there's only a handful of companies selling seeds, like 
what does that have to do with the ethical treatment of animals, right? Like, but all of that stuff trickles down in these ways that just, you know, I think part of what I found so powerful with the piece is that it, 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 it articulates it, right? Like, I think you could say, like, generally, uh, you know, like, oh, should we have more competition? Like, yeah, like, that is a democratic line. There should, there should be more competition. But it's like, this piece breaks down specifically from a farmer to a consumer why you should feel uncomfortable with, like, the lack of competition. Like, it articulates very specifically, like, even if you're not a farmer, well, shit, you probably care about how those, you know, chickens or, or cows are, are packed together, right? Like that's what you that's what you keep liking on Facebook, right? And you know you but I, I I've never hear really heard a politician articulate specifically my personal relationship with these monopolies, and I think that's like the big like right that has to be some some part of this pivot that will hopefully will come in twenty twenty is like specifically articulating to people what is your relationship to monopolies? Like the easy one is like ah man you only get to sign up for Comcast right and like but. It's like it's everywhere. Like the lack of competition, the, the the monopolistic nature of American capitalism is everywhere. And but it's just nobody's articulating how it affects you and how it affects your values, right? So like like that goes from for a farmer, it's how it impacts the bottom line. For the average person, it's like, well, how does this impact your values? And I think like the average person, they'd respond to those questions, be like, yeah, fuck them, like break them up. Yeah. Uh, one of the most terrifying things reading that second article. Um, about uh, the dairy farmer retiring was in the last paragraph uh, when he talks about, or the second to last paragraph when he talks about, you know, quote, despite this, I hung on, but I couldn't continue milking cows indefinitely. Perhaps it's for the best. A few years before we sold our herd, we had to install huge fans in our barn. The summers were getting too hot for the cows to be out during the heat of the day. Climate change would have made our future in farming that much harder. We could have adapted, I think, but we ran out of time. And that to me is like another, like, oh, who can afford, like, to adjust to climate change? Like, in in thinking about, you know, uh, like, small-time farmers, like, already operating at at, at debts and in, 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 you know, negative numbers. And then with, you know, the impact of climate change, meaning, you know, huge spending on, on adjustments, like, it's just, it's completely unsustainable. And can breaking up monopolies even, like, I, I, like, it has to be better, but I worry that, it doesn't change it overnight, right? It becomes a generational yeah, shift. Yeah, like it's like you can but, break yeah, them all but right now, but in fifty years, who fucking knows what the earth looks like? Like, who but, knows what what agriculture is like in fifty years? That, Maybe we're all operating out of greenhouses. Like, it's such a chilling detail because, like, yeah. this is Wisconsin, and cows can't be out during the day in the summer on a lot of days like that is a terrifying detail because like that's a pretty northerly latitude that's pretty temperate and already this is becoming a major issue for farmers uh in wisconsin so that's happening today what's it going to look like in 10 years right um and exactly how do you how do you fix this how do you make it look how do you make how do you make this tenable um at the same time i like i do look at that and i i also see another problem where Almost certainly agriculture consolidation has made this worse, right? I mean, 
mm-hmm. one of the major issues that uh like <clears throat> one one reason that um, major cattle herds produce so much methane is because they are fed corn uh they, they you know they're not supposed to eat corn uh but so they end up uh producing a lot more methane because it doesn't sit right in their in their stomachs yeah uh and so basically like because corn is cheap large agriculture firms feed cattle corn uh, and basically give herds just enduring cases of indigestion. And it becomes a major driver of uh, greenhouse emissions. Um, farmers, a lot of these agriculture products, a lot of these farming practices are incredibly hard on uh, soil quality and water supply. And again, we kind of just look the other way while these companies sort of encourage what are ultimately unsustainable and destructive uh, practices. And... Yeah, it's just a really eye-opening piece about. Okay, well, put, well, put this is, I think it's very easy from the remove of a city, to just think about this has been happening for thirty years as long as I've been alive. Basically, things have been getting harder for farmers. I think it's very easy for me, certainly, to look at that as like, yeah, it's agriculture in a post-industrial age. Like, of course, things are getting harder. I'm sure that's just a natural market force that is that is at work. And a piece like this is really good, like pointing out mm, there is a design here. Like mm. there you're not choices. wrong, but you're wrong for all sorts of other different reasons. Yeah. yeah. I mean, shit. The line that really uh, chilled me was uh, uh, one large dairy co-op in the northwest or northeast um, sent its members a, a list of suicide and mental health hotlines along with their dairy checks. Yeah, these are these are populations that are increasingly afflicted by uh, uh, opioid epidemics and also higher suicide rates. Yeah. Um, like, things are fucking dismal. Like, they're they're super grim. And it, there's no... And there's no hope on the horizon, right? Like, you're sending those with the checks because, you know, there's less money to go around and also, like... There's no mental... It's yeah. not like it's going to get better tomorrow. There's no, there's no mental health care, uh, universal, like, uh, health care that's going to... Uh, serve these communities in terms of like we in the United States we have a problem with how we address like drug crises you know like it just it's it's from like all fucking sides and that's why it feels so devastating because it's like every you're just getting hit from everywhere yeah uh so anyway I thought that was a a really good piece a good like sort of first look at what has happened in rural places. And this is a, uh, this is a space that I don't think uh, we, our politics and our discourse have done a great job of addressing or even comprehending. Uh, And so, and it's not just what's what's encouraging about this piece and why I would echo people reading it. It's not just look. I love hearing. I'm I'm interested in hearing. I don't love hearing. I'm, I'm fascinated by, and we're drawn to like individual um, stories of, of hardship and, and people having to uh, deal with, um, with, with crushing loss or having to move on from their careers. But like this article is very good. It's not just a pull at your heartstrings. It's like a brass tax, like policy wise mm-hmm. in a very readable fashion, like what's fucked up about what we've let go wrong. And so, you know, like the Washington Post piece, you know, that, that you linked about, um, you know, the, the, the now former farmer, like I enjoy reading those too. That is a certain window into but i often leave those pieces going like okay what can we, but like yeah, what, do, what can we do what do i do about yeah. this right like who am i voting for like you know this is a piece where it's like okay i'm now thinking x y and z as i'm watching you know the 2020 yep. primaries 
like kick into gear. Like this gives me like actionable things to be like, okay, I, th- these are things I want to know from the candidates. Whereas like those pieces give us a, a slice of life and, and they, they are um, informative, but I often find them to be empty calories because you cu- it's, it's something to share on Facebook and it, it is interesting, but like this is something where it's like, okay, I came away from this piece like with three bullet points that I'm thinking about when you know Kamala Harris and, and others yeah. are, are are saying that we're gonna we're gonna fix things, and I'm the one that can speak. To, you know, Beto's like I can speak the rule of order. I'm like, okay, well, what the fuck does that mean, and how does that address? Even if you're not necessarily farming is your talking point, you know, this is just one of many different areas in which policy changes well, would ripple. Uh, you know, into, into other areas. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? Often these are portrayed as cultural issues. Oh, I can talk to rural voters. I can I can relate to them. Yeah, that's like this, a cultural disconnect. Yeah, and this is like, mm, it may not be, and probably frequently is not, an issue of culture. It is that what you have to say doesn't actually speak to any of their realities, and it does not inspire anyone's trust or confidence that you're going to make their lives materially better. Uh, so that is definitely something to be listening to as we move toward uh, what is sure to be a scintillating and delightful primary season. Uh, <laughs> Which we are. We've talked about um, that, you know, uh, you know, it's not like we're making like a regular feature, but like we want to try like you, Rob, had pitched maybe doing uh, a, you know, a waypoint on an article about Kamala Harris's, um, you know, history as a prosecutor. And so I think that one of the things we're going to try and explore through waypoint is. You know, as I'm sure everyone listening is thinking about that stuff and you're starting to try and process the background to a bunch of people that you only know through like glowing shallow profiles um, in the political press. But, you know, I think that's something where we can start considering each of these candidates through these lenses, you know, as they as they begin to announce their their runs. All right, so uh, we will leave it there for today. Our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slightest Leap off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people keep up with you online? At Patrick Lubbock. Natalie. At Natalie Watson, tidying my life. All right, that'll do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Uh, We'll be back again with... A Friday Waypoint Radio uh, that I was not on, but I heard was a great conversation with great. Uh, Adam Conover. Uh, uh, so we hope you'll join us again for that. But until then, do not give in to astonishment. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.